Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Julia Lee, Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and your host for today's show. My guest today is Christopher Patterson, who writes creatively under his matrilineal name, Kavika Guillermo. He and I will be talking about two new works, his memoir, Nimrods, a fake punk self-hurt anti-memoir published by Duke University Press in 2023, and the memoir of his late partner, Idang Trung, titled Landbridge, Life in Fragments, published by Knopf Canada, also in 2023. Idang Trung was a writer, scholar, and a teacher. She was assistant professor of English at the University of British Columbia, where she researched and taught in the fields of transnational Asian literatures, critical refugee studies, global South studies, and critical disability studies. She was an associate editor of the, of the journal Canadian Literature and a 2020 Wall Scholar at the Peter Wall Institute for Advanced Studies. Her recent publications can be found in Canadian Literature, Brick, a literary magazine, Amerasia, and Inter-Asia Cultural Studies. She is the author of Refugee Life Worlds, The Afterlife of the Cold War in Cambodia, published by Temple University Press in 2022, and Lambridge, Life in Fragments, which is the work we will be discussing today. Idang passed away in November 2022 of pancreatic cancer. Kavika Guillermo is the matrilineal name of Christopher B. Patterson, who is an associate professor in the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. He is the author of Stamped, an anti-travel novel published in 2018, All Flowers Bloom, published in 2020, and Nimrods, a fake punk self-hurt anti-memoir, which we'll be discussing today. His short stories and poetry have been published in numerous venues, including the Cimarron Review, WSQ, Women's Studies Quarterly, and Feminist Studies. Christopher's research reads trans-Pacific literature, games, and film through the lens of empire and queer theory. Along with his creative works, he is the author of two award-winning scholarly monographs, Transitive Cultures, Anglophone Literature of the Trans-Pacific, published by Rutgers University Press in 2018, and Open World Empire, Race, Erotics, and the Global Rise of Video Games, published by New York University Press in 2020. He is currently co-editing two collections that are forthcoming in 2024, Trans-Pacific Undisciplined, with Lily Wong and Xianting Lin out of the University of Washington Press and Made in Asian America, Why Video Games Were Never Really About Us with Tara Fickle out of Duke University Press. In Landbridge, Edang Trong meditates on her family's refugee history and the genocide that has marked the lives of millions of Cambodians like herself. She writes scathingly about how she and her family became the faces of Cambodian refugees in Canada officially welcomed by then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, her 11-month-old face plastered on newspapers as a sign of Canadian benevolence. She also writes of her return trips to Phnom Penh with her mother and then with her partner Chris, and these exploits are filled with anguish and guilt, but also love and friendship. Interspersed with memories of her childhood growing up in Canada, going out in the middle of the night to collect worms for money, enduring the racist attack of neighbors and schoolmates, staying up with her brothers to watch their beloved Montreal Canadiens, 
She talks about how her research into and deep knowledge about Cambodia and the Cambodian diaspora is dismissed in academia. As much as it is a reflection on the, on the past, Landbridge is also a missive to the future, a letter from a dying mother to her beloved child. Edang's voice is powerful and raw, her words filled with joy, regret, anger, and love, sometimes within the space of a few sentences. I started reading this book and found that I could not put it down until I had finished it. Nimrod's recounts a very different kind of Asian diasporic experience. Guillermo explores the pain of a childhood and adulthood marked by rigidly Christian dictates espoused by a father who was abusive and alcoholic. The alienation that he feels as a brown-skinned, biracial, and bisexual person within his own family is echoed by the racism that he experiences living in the United States. His attempts to flee the past, to, his attempts to flee that past lead to a life of travel outside the US. Guillermo challenges the reader with a reading surface in which text and white space are in, are in uneven relation to each other. Words or letters fade in or out. The order in which you're supposed to read is unclear. Images are interspersed with text. But the difficulty of the text and the difficult emotions that it depicts seem to me ultimately to be a rumination on the nature of community and its relationship to forgiveness. I had the pleasure of reading these two books, one right after the other, and all I could think afterwards was, I cannot wait to teach them and share them with students. Chris, thank you for joining me on New Books in Asian American Studies today. Thank you, Julie. It's really a pleasure to be here, and thank you for that very warm and thorough intro. So both you and Edang are accomplished scholars of Asian North American and Asian American diasporic studies, or Asian diasporic studies, I should say. And you've both written extensively on those and related topics. Um, but today we're talking about your respective memoirs, Landbridge and Nimrods. So I'd like to start by asking kind of a basic question maybe, although I think it isn't that basic. Um, why memoir? And and by that, I don't mean why did you want, why did you want to write a memoir? I mean more, um, why did you want to write in the genre of memoir as opposed to another form of writing, whether that is creative or not creative? So um, I like that this question is framed more on the genre of memoir rather than the memoir itself or life writing itself. Um, because both Edang and I were really wrestling with both of these questions um, throughout our writing and academic careers. Um, on the question of self-representation, which is sometimes the same, but sometimes very different from the question of memoir, which has become such a, a large, um, I think by statistics, it might be the dominant um, type of literary form now um, in terms of sales. Um, and I felt, I felt kind of like uh, from an early age that I sh shouldn't write my story and um, because I was in a community that was mostly white and evangelical, um, very like patriotic and anti-queer. Um, and then later in life, uh, becoming more involved with like Filipinx communities who had a very particular idea of what a Filipino American was, um, being like Catholic, Tagalog speaking, straight and masculine and not mixed, I guess. Um, so writing my story for those around me would have been either a kind of risk to myself or like totally fake because I would have had to like claim things that weren't true about myself or um, 
Yeah, so that was difficult. Um, and besides, I had gone into like with Foy Deng too. I think we both went into books and writing um, as a way originally to escape a lot of the things in our lives, uh, which she writes about quite a lot in, in Landbridge, um, going under, retreating under tables to like kind of sink away with a book. Um, and it was only kind of later that we both started to find stories that more resembled ourselves. Um, but we still kind of held on to that desire for escape in our own work. Um, if we look at Ideng's work from the beginning of her academic career, she was always very interested in memoir and, and refugee representation um, and in life life uh, life storytelling um, as both kind of ways of bearing witness to atrocity, but also as forms of like performed patriotism for the host country who needed these kind of national symbols of goodness and gratitude to uh, erase the fact that many of the bombs and atrocities were due to their own misdeeds and due to their own um, uh, their, their own bombs. And so in one of her last essays, actually, um, published just before she passed, she analyzes um, Vien Nguyen's novel, The Sympathizer, um, and tries to show the way that it's not an autobiography, but it's framed as an ethnic memoir, as an autobiography. But we learn toward the end that it's actually a confession that's made to a communist interrogator Actually, I think we learned that from the beginning, right? <laughs> but but it doesn't really come into play that much until toward the end. Um, so it's a confession being made under duress and torture and threat to the person's life. Um, but we read it as an ethnic memoir that like stylistically, um, it almost matches. Um, and so I think part of the point for Yideng, you know, when she was thinking about this when writing Landbridge was to understand how life story is often told under duress. Um, and has a lot to do with life and safety, and especially for refugees. So she she often turned to fiction and poetry um, as a literary scholar, um, as a means of getting deeper to the truths about the afterlife of war, um, still using kind of life story, but not trusting it in the same extent to tell those deeper truths. Um, so then the question of why did we both end up writing <laughs> these memoir-like books then? Um, I think we were both thinking of like a more reparative, uh, that is creative or reanimating kind of way of dealing with the problems of memoir that we were both um, very interested in. Um, I think we both, uh, I it took me a, a long time to realize it for myself, but she always had a very unique story to tell um, and stories that we both felt would be either, if we told them truthfully, would be rejected by our own communities or completely misunderstood or appropriated by those outside of our communities. Um, so we were both kind of working on this for like throughout our lives in ways that we just never felt were ready um, that could actually elude a lot, all those trappings. Um, but we stood on the shoulders of many great artists and thinkers and writers who came before us and tried to think about the kind of methods that they practice, even if they weren't writing memoir, if they were writing um, different types of, of, of fiction or poetry. Um, and so uh, when we were especially trying to find ways of thinking about memoir um, outside of the kind of fidelity to North American empire, um, that memoirs today often act as propaganda for. Um, and I mean, I think that the stakes were really high, <laughs> some, especially for Ideng, um, in that the year that she passed just last year, um, one of the last books that we kind of read together was a memoir that had just come out by a Cambodian-American 
um, that basically depicts Cambodia as this completely bigoted, anti-queer, patriarchal place. And then goes on to actually, it's only like two or three sentences, but it justifies this, the, um, the amount of U.S. bombs dropped on Cambodia as this legitimate thing. And to have that memoir come out in 2022, you know, after the like declassification of Nixon and Kissinger's like utter disregard for Cambodian life, um, after so much documented evidence of the relation between U.S. bombs and the strengthening of the Khmer Rouge, and after decades of children being like killed in Maine by explosive ordinances, we still have this. And I feel like it's only it could only be in memoir that you would still see this kind of thing, um, see it as a kind of legitimate you know, thing, because it's somebody's personal story, right? And who's going to argue against it? Um, but it is a misinformation. It is a kind of, um, you know, imperial uh, propaganda that's peddled as as personal story. And not to like say that the the writer is thinking of all those things. I'm sure that's that's all like a side thing. But even just like those three or four sentences that legitimate bombing um, do a lot of work, right? Because it's told from his personal account. And it feels like it's been a complete 180, you know, since like slave narratives and the autobiographies of Malcolm X and Angela Davis, since like this bridge called my back, you know, like there's always been um, more radical traditions of, of life writing, but most memoir today just doesn't feel like it's in those traditions, um, which is why I, I title my own work an anti-memoir. And Edang herself refused to call Lambridge a memoir. She would call it sometimes a, a family memoir or a collective memoir um, or just her fragments. Yeah, I was just going to say, because, you know, you have anti-memoir as part of the subtitle and, and of course, and, and fragments is in, is in parentheses, right, after Landbridge, right? But it, what you're saying is really resonating with me, this idea of, of memoir under duress, right, or, or recognizing the potential misappropriation or misuses of your experiences, right, for, for whatever purpose. Um, and I, I'm also struck by it because one of the things I was wondering, I mean, you you write about this, both of you write about this, and I've listened to a few um, podcasts or interviews that you've given, um, and you were obviously both um, editors and readers of each other's work. So, you know, when you mentioned like writing memoir under the duress, right? This must have been a very distressing and, and you know, difficult time um, because of Edang's illness. So I, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind giving us some insight into kind of the writing and editing process that both of you went through together. Presumably, I, I assume you were writing the memoirs at the same time, um, not only just in terms of your intellectual back and forth and the kind of ideas that you were both negotiating, but also the sort of materiality or the everyday practice of writing under these circumstances, writing with illness. Yeah, that's a um, it's a hard question because we we both you know when we met we both were saw each other as um, body mind body divergent in different ways, um, and under a, you know a kind of structure of disability rights. Um, that exceptionalizes like disability among white and privileged people, but normalizes it, or um, that's the word, like makes it expected, I guess, among everybody else. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that uh, marginalized people just kind of see different kinds of illness in each other, but don't really need to talk about it or or make it, you know, um, the primary form of identifying. 
Um, and so she struggled a lot, as I struggled a lot with um, different kinds of mind-body divergences. Um, but really with her cancer um, being diagnosed in uh, November 2021, uh, that it, it did kind of, uh, she had been working on Lambridge quite a long time before that, but didn't really, um, it wasn't an urgent thing right until um, she was diagnosed. Um, but I think in a way it also gave some form to the book because it gave a, a constant kind of palpable presence to the histories that she was trying to talk about. And I think that was one difficult thing about the text before that was like, how do we make these histories non-histories in a way? <laughs> how do we make them present uh, so that, that that distancing doesn't occur? And how do we also make them futuristic? Um, and so both of those, I think the cancer, you know, um, as horrible as it was, um, gave not really an endpoint, but a kind of presence to all that history. Um, but to live in the afterlife of war is not the same as living after death or after tragedy. That war um, remains with us in ways that, like causes of cancer, are like uncountable and um, untraceable and very elusive in terms of finding any sort of justice, right? That there's been virtually like no accountability for the amount of bombs dropped on Cambodia, just as there's no accountability for, you know, what when people get cancer, there's really nothing no sense of like justice, um, unless there's a, you know, big class action lawsuit and they can trace everything. Um, but even like when we were talking to the doctors, you know, they would tell us stories like how common it was for them to see people from certain, um, mostly indigenous regions of Canada, you know, coming to the cancer centers. Um, but they also weren't recording it because, um, under some Canadian policies, like you're not supposed to mention race, right. In a lot of forms and things, even in even indigeneity. And so there was just no real like like gathering of information or research. Um, and we kept thinking that somebody was going to walk in, some researcher who had been working on this for a long time was going to walk in and say, like, you have this form of cancer that can be traced to blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a complete naive hope as we began to realize that this just doesn't seem to happen. Um, but that resonated, of course, with the amount of, of um, um, you know, doing research in war-torn areas. Um, it's all part of the larger story of war and toxicity, um, refugee assimilation, um, being a debt-bound daughter, conducting research, and, and so on. And so I think all that was part of, became part of Lambridge quite um, naturally, and it gave that that presence that she needed. Um, for me, for when I was writing Nimrods, it was um, bef mostly before her diagnosis, um, and I was doing more copy editing for it as, um, after that, but when she was diagnosed, I committed myself like as fully as I could to, um, editing and just kind of providing feedback for her work. Um, and we were able to, um, I think mostly, most of the time I would just tell her like, this is absolutely amazing. It needs to be come out. <laughs> yeah, that was mostly my role in that um and to uh I, and i helped arrange some of the fragments of just figuring out where they might go um but it's all completely edang of course um but it was um nice to kind of try and finish writing about my own um finish my own memoir anti-memoir and then turn to hers because at, as you've noted it's a completely different 
style <laughs> and take on the on the genre. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, I was struck when you were talking because Landbridge includes her like sketches that her her physicians would write. I, I guess to kind of explain or. Um, uh, talk about her diagnosis and things. And I was just really struck by the sort of like, it looked like, you know, when my father would help me with math and he would write all the, <laughs> he would write like things on the napkin. Like it looked, it had that kind of ephemeral feel to it. Um, and at the same time, it's like, well, this is the person who is, you know, who is supposed to quote unquote, you know, help you get better or, you know what, this is like the voice of science or this is, um, so I was just really struck by that, that it wasn't that the kind of the way in which the cancer is talked about in these clinical settings is still in this very kind of um, ephemeral way or, you know, not in this kind of standardized way. Um, so I really found that powerful. Yeah, she she had a, one of her um, hobbies was scrapbooking and collaging. And um, it, it soon, like, I think in the last three or four years became like her her most, <laughs> her only hobby, one of her only hobbies that she would just do all the time. Um, and so she had, and before that, she was journaling a lot. Um, she left a lot of journals from the time she was like 11 or 12. Um, and poetry, too. She would write poetry. So I think there's, um, she had this uh, desire to document things as they were happening. Um, and in the scrapbooking, like she would often give them as gifts. She would make like a page or a whole, she'd give, she gave me a book of scrapbooks a couple times <laughs> of just our time together. Um, and so kind of seeing the way that those photographs and images would correspond and when they're juxtaposed with, with certain words, um, it was always a gift that she had, um, you know, that she relied on when she wanted to show others love. And so I think she, a lot of that um, that juxtaposition goes into Landbridge and also the the quietness and the meditation that images kind of allow, um, which she, was something she was always searching for. Sometimes she didn't want words um, all the time. She wanted silence and peace. And some of her um, poetry from, from even from when she was very young was often about how this need and desire for peace and wordlessness. Um, and so even when the images are kind of cartoony, I think that they lend this, you know, palp this realness to what's happening. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because, of course, you also have images in photographs, I think mostly of yourself or your family, right? These kinds of black and white photographs that have been faced or that you've covered your own face in. Um, and so it is really striking, not only the kind of textual differences between your two works, but also the use of image. Um and because she does also include family photographs and of course the, I guess the famous photo of her as a baby, right, um, presented. And so it, it, do you, could you just say a little bit more about that? Cause that was a really striking thing I thought in both works um, was the kind of very careful, well, I don't know if it was, I don't know if careful is the right word but the use of of kind of images and photographs like that. Yeah, yeah, whereas Ideng really loved scrapbooking. I, I kind of first, started doing a lot of storytelling with comics when I was a kid with my twin brother, we would make comics together. And, um, and I, I loved, um, like zines, um, I, growing up in the nineties, there was just tons of like these hand, you know, these printed zines everywhere, especially in Portland <laughs> where I was growing up. And so you just see them constantly. And 
Uh, I still see them whenever I go back to Portland, like someone just has a printer and a stapler and that's how they're producing all of this, all this work. And so, um, and I love lyric sheets. Um, that's something that nobody's, we don't see anymore when you stop buying CDs and, and such. But um, I used to like, just love keeping lyric sheets and writing on lyric sheets. Um, and Edang would give me scrapbooks as gifts uh, every now and then. I would give her lyric sheets that I would print out and write in and just like say, this is how this lyric reminds me of you or this time we spent together. Um, and so I think we're both kind of <laughs> showing our love to the audience <laughs> in the ways that we've been able to show our love to each other and to others. Um, and so I, I do like how in lyric sheets and, and in zines, um, you would get a lot of images um, and just juxtaposed with the lyrics or the poetry or or the political statement or whatever's happening in those spaces. Um, and a lot of times they, they are like family pictures or pictures of the artists themselves with X's on their eyes or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, they're very different ways of thinking about images. Like Edang and I would had this joke that like she didn't want any pictures of her in Landbridge of like her, um, I guess her like adulthood. Um, and whereas Nimrod is just full of pictures of myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of pictures of you. That's yeah, but I think they're kind of equipped for similar reasons. And um, whereas I'm, I think my drive is partly to just say like, you know, I come from this very weird background, this very like unique background of coming from a very mixed family that includes like indigenous black people, um, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, and later like Cambodian. Um, that I just come from this very mixed family and that uh, trying to make that real and trying to like make my face <laughs> real in a sense was always important for me. Um, and growing up in, the, in a very religious background, like I wanted to just lend this kind of like this exists, you know, there are you know, this does happen because there was so much doubt whenever I present um, my own background and the, the mixtures that are involved in it. Uh, at the same time with, with Edang, it was almost the opposite, right? The people had a very specific idea of who she was based on the Canadian state exceptionalism and so on. And so trying to kind of take herself um, as a figure out of that narrative, um, or at least out of the iconography was really important. Okay, that that is really interesting and insightful, I think. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the beginning of your books, of your respective books. Um, so they both, they open with a preface and an invocation, right? Um, and to me, both of them are, and you may disagree with this, feel free to, to tell me, I'm, you know, why I'm wrong. But to me, they're both essentially like, they're openings that are about the difficulty of articulation, like the impossibility of speaking to a certain extent. Um, and that sense that you were talking about, that there is no relief in the telling, right? That Or there's very little relief in that telling. So your, your book opens um, with the line, can't write for shit these days. Um, and then Edang's book begins with an awareness about all the conflicts or tensions that arise when you voice your story, or as you were mentioning, when you have it voiced for you um, by another entity. So there's so many examples of this in both of the works. Can you can you talk about the difficulty of speaking um, and why you wanted to open? Why, did you discuss opening both books that way? Or was that something that just kind of happened and um, happened organically? 
No, I we didn't discuss it. Um, we discussed a lot of our critiques of memoir and things like that constantly together. But I think when we went off into our own worlds of creation, we wanted to keep them distinct um, because we were both so creative, right? And it, it would be like, well, if I was writing this, this is what I would do. And we just didn't want, <laughs> you know, we, we enjoyed our private realm um, uh, of writing. Um, but yeah, we both did happen to kind of begin with this enunciation or this invocation um, of something beyond us, I guess. Um, and also offering a kind of like uh, hopefulness in writing. Um, there was this great quote by uh, uh, Rabbi Alamadine that um, in the, I've only heard him say in interviews when people ask him why he writes, because he's he's quite a hopeless guy, I think, <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, um, you know, he just said, I have to do something, you know, I can't do nothing um, in light of everything that's happening in the world. Uh, and I think both of our invocations are a bit like that, you know, of, you know, we don't, we're not putting a whole lot of faith or hope in things, but what else can we do? Um, and given our talents and networks and everything, this is the most that we can do. Um, but it is also like an invocation of the of the community. Um, I I think both of our um, in our conversations about memoir, you know, we we both, like I said, really valued the private realm of thinking and being. But we also really didn't like the individualism, you know, espoused by memoirs. Um, and, you know, a lot of memoirs, especially from even from Asian Americans, sometimes throw their parents under the bus <laughs> very early. Um, in a way, I guess I, I do too, but it, I, it's different in the way I do it. Never it is different. I want to talk about that, but please continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, they throw their parents under the bus in terms of like that they don't, you know, understand their anxieties. Um, what it's like to grow up in the U.S. and so on. Um, but we wanted to have something that was much more like in conversation and produced through our families and our communities, um, as well as retaining a lot of that individual, like um, a private you know, realm of thinking and being. And so for me, I, I begin it with um, thinking about how Nimrods as a kind of thing greater than it is, uh, or the greater than me, I should say, began, you know, with patriarchy, began with empire, um, and then with my father as well, and with other things in my life, with the birth of my son. Um, but it will also go on past the, the book. Um, and she begins Lambridge thinking about how, you know, it's in her words, and she takes responsibility for everything in the book, but it's also written with her family and her community and, and the stories that are entrusted to her you know, um, by them. And so it's not really, we both try to kind of de-center ourselves or to say like we are centering ourselves for this particular reason, not because we are the important thing here. Um, it's the it's the, the, the community and the, the history that are the important things that we want to call attention to through like the uniqueness of our stories. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well put. I mean, can we talk about your father a little bit? Um, so, you know, you mentioned throwing him under the bus. I, it, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that assessment. I mean, your father, you know, you start out describing him, this is a quote, as a big, bald, white man who wears plaid shirts, uh, light blue jeans and trucker hats. And yes, we were all afraid of him. And, um, you know, he's the much loved son of a preacher. He has this kind of nickname, Baby Blue. He voted for Trump. 
Um, he espouses all these conspiracy theories and, and, um, but there's an incredible amount of, I don't know if grace is the right word. I don't know if you want to claim that word given its connotations. Like, yeah, no, grace is good. Uh, <laughs> tenderness. Yeah. Some yeah. like, uh, futurity in in your relationship with him which to me signals hope right that um not only you know you're estranged with him and, and very and and it sounds like many members of your immediate family are, are estranged from him completely um but you know that relationship and the the kind of father-son relation or the father-child relation which you which you open the book with also your own child right um, I was just, can you say more about, um, can you say more about that relationship? To me, you know, you were raised in this family or environment that was not welcoming to you or to your siblings or to your mother. Um, but the tension between you and your father isn't, is not as simple as like a racial one. I, at, at least it felt to me, like it felt much more, um, complicated by various other factors that can't just be reduced to this idea of race. Um, and so could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Yeah, he, um, I was kind of just joking when I said I throw him under the bus. <laughs> I try really hard to uh, reverse throwing <laughs> at different points of the book. Um, but I think there's something kind of unique to me about um, the, the kind of patriarchal relationships um, because there is almost a kind of jocular, like, um, uh, punching bag-ish kind of way that um, people can react to each other, like father sons can react to each other, feel free to do so. Um, and my father was always kind of owned that a bit. Like he would say like, um, family is only there to push you out, you know, and I'm only here to challenge you. You have to like <laughs> overcome me, <laughs> not in a mean way. Uh, you know, it sounds like a horrible thing to say, but he would say that kind of seriously, like, you know, I'm here to challenge you and, and, um, so I, it, for me, it's it's partly like, well, uh, a bit of, um, you know, um, tit for tat kind of thing. <laughs> but at, at the, um, I also name him Baby Blue um, as the nickname because it comes from a Pink Floyd lyric. We often listen to Pink Floyd together um, and so a lot of different kinds of music we listen to together. Um, so the, the whole, like Nimrod's really did kind of sprout as a idea when um, I realized I was going to be a father and I never wanted to be a father, um, partially because of my own relationship with my father and thinking like there was no model of fatherhood that I could really see myself melding into. I could only really see myself just repeating his mistakes. Um, and I was very estranged from, for him, from him for almost a decade. I would say like I would see him maybe once every two or three years. Um, usually in, a, in not in North America, but because um, he was living in South Korea and then uh, in the UAE. And so um, I was kind of like blissfully, like just able to abstract him as this kind of, not quite villainous, but, you know, disturbing um, person who I think the longer I kind of stayed away from him, the more he became like this abstract figure of like whiteness, patriarchy, um, uh, religion, science denying, um, Trumpism, you know, eventually <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and so the, the more I kind of, I, once I realized I was going to become a father, I just started to think more about, you know, what it was like growing up with him, um, and the kind of complexity of having 
that kind of fear of somebody who could, you know, be um, who could get drunk or something, but also someone who showed so much love and hope and, um, you know, that even as twisted as it was, like so much of uh, he really believes in in heaven and hell and things like that. And the, the main impetus for, a, you know, a parent who believes that is to make sure their kids don't get tortured for eternity, <laughs> as, as weird as that sounds to, to me now, not believing in that. Um, and so I, I knew somewhere deep in my heart that he wasn't those kind of abstract, terrible things. Um, he was very loving and caring and intelligent and wise in his own ways, um, and very, very flawed, of course. But also in respect to being raised in a white, you know, evangelical preacher's family, um, whose father was, he was, his, my grandfather was a preacher, but also the dean of a very religious science denying Christian college that like my dad didn't really stand a chance to like ever become the kind of father that I wish I would have, like being an adult now, right. And being an academic and all of these things, like there's no way he could have given me those things. Um, and given his upbringing, like, I kind of think like, of course he had all those flaws. Like, like i of course he was an alcoholic of course he expressed bigotry at times like those were all things that um how could he not have been those things um of course he also uh i, I was i was raised with like half the expectations maybe that he had and i often surprised that i got out like alive you know but just the fact that he is like as warm and as loving now as he's ever been um, he lives in portland now uh, to me is 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 just shows that people can change and can, you know, um, come out of some of the things that they've been brought up in. Which isn't to say that like any of us are perfect um, or once we're out of something, right? That it's complex. Um, I'm so, so to answer the question, <laughs> I guess it's not really limited to race because that's just one of many components that were between us. Um, and for me to see it all within like any kind of ism or idea would be to go back into that space of retreat that I was in for a long time, uh, I was kind of containing him. Um, but his whiteness is really important. Like there are a lot of people in my family who have struggled with a lot worse things, a lot worse addictions. Um, I have a cousin who just two years ago um, committed suicide, for example. You know, I, I think I, I dedicate part of the book to him at the end. Um, I think a thankfulness to him. Um, there's just a lot of other things in my family, um, the non-white side of my family, I should say, that I don't write about because th there's like family business <laughs> kind of stuff. Whereas for some, like, I think having the, the whiteness there and the white fatherhood, there's something that's just so much more free to discuss openly. That having somebody who does kind of resemble those abstract forms is helpful in a way to like share this knowledge and experience, um, in a way that that isn't quite as um doesn't have the same kind of tensions alongside it as it would were I to share other family members experience or even my own experience in some ways so I do want to like I, I try to make a point when I whenever I talk about Nimrods that like yes my father went through a lot he was alcoholic he was he had suicidal ideation and so on um but it's not an exception you know like that in a lot of uh, families of color that's a very expected thing to have but with him, it was, I think, because it was exceptional and in, in just what he expected out of his life, it had different kinds of consequences that made it a bit easier to write about. Mm -hmm. You know, when you were talking just now about, um, you know, 
the family members you don't write about in the book. I did think, because you invoke Maxine Hunt Kingston, I think as well. And I thought, oh, maybe this is the the first part of a two of a two parter. And then, do you know what I mean? Like Kingston wrote a woman warrior about her mother. And um, then she wrote Chinaman about her father and grandfathers. And um, I think that's interesting, right? That you're drawing this kind of, you have the the poem about your mother um, in the middle of the second part of the book, um, but that's kind of, you know, that's like a curtain and it, it, it takes a very different shape, right? Um, it's a poem um, as opposed to kind of the, the biblical text, right? That sort of structures that section. So I, as you were talking, I just thought of that, like, oh, that would be interesting to think what kind of memoir would it be if it were about a mother and a son as opposed to father and son. Um, it's maybe for the future for you, I don't know, but anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's an interesting thing considering like the the um, gender relations that we sometimes carry forth with us too. Um, cause I see myself as so much more like my mother's son than my father's son, I guess. Um, almost all my habits I see in my mother <laughs> that I have. And so almost like writing about her is almost too close to home in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I did want to like give her space, even though I felt like trying to get her voice was kind of beyond what I needed to do or felt like I wanted to do. Um, and so that poem I spent like a full month on, um, nothing but writing that poem and answering emails, I guess, when I had to <laughs> uh, during a, a summer break. And um, yeah, it's a complicated poem. When I read it now, you know, I still feel like um, there's there is part of me that's trying to expose myself as somebody who's like trying to spend so much time dwelling in that in in her mind. Yeah, and that, I think that by the end of that poem, we are like the same, and which is something that I still feel like I'm still feel like I'm mir mirroring a lot of her habits and things. I, but I don't plan to write <laughs> a sequel or anything like fair that. Enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, you know, the when I think about um, Landbridge, then right, if we're talking about your father as kind of one of the central figures in Nimrods. You know, in Landbridge, I I really the the figure that I was thinking of in that book is the figure of the refugee, and particularly the figure of the good refugee, like the ghost of the good refugee, right? And I put good refugee in quotes. Um, and of course, Edang herself was the good refugee, like the face of that, right? For Canada, when when she and her family arrived, and that image is used in various ways and ways that like enrage her and and um, uh, uh, make her feel helpless, right? Um, and but that sense of outrage is also balanced against this other thread in the memoir, which maybe isn't as um, pronounced, but which I which I felt, which is she does feel to a certain extent grateful, right? She does say at various points, oh, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had in my life. Of course, it's better to be living in Canada, you know, and and being an academic and having these opportunities than, than you know, dying in Cambodia, right? I think she mentions. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about that tension in, in the work? And we've heard so much about the, the image of the good refugee. It's part of the model minority narrative, right? It's it's particularly gendered. You you brought that up a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, um, I mean, Edang in many ways, her life just resembled so many 
extremes that um, when I first met her in 2014, like I didn't know what to believe because so much of it sounded almost like like a literary figure. She was named after the, the refugee camp she was that she was born in um, and that, uh, yeah, that she was pictured with the prime minister, <laughs> you know, so, she, so just hearing it all like laid out within the first week that we met, it was like, who, like, what? Who lives a life like this, right? It does read like kind of like a novel, I thought. Yeah. And then who goes on to get a PhD in English <laughs> and, and live in Hong Kong where we met and participate in like the Occupy movement things. It's just like, there's just so much um, extremism there. And, um, you know, she lived a very enriching and complex life of these extremes as did her family. Um, but she was also, you know, she couldn't have gotten to be as successful as she was without having help from a lot of people. Um, there was like some landlord at some point who just never asked for rent for her for, for like, couple years and just and just never became a thing like there were just small moments like that and um I think living within that realm she could always understand in some way what people were getting when they wanted to give her something that there was it what there was a kind of um exchange relationship of like gratitude for you know a kind of emotional exchange relationship for for feeling released from guilt or, or something of the sort um, and she also had two brothers who went through like very opposing experiences that she went through where she was always invited to things and, you know, wouldn't have to pay rent just for no reason. <laughs> Her brothers went through like the opposite kind of, um, they were always seen as like gangsters. Um, you know, they were always suspect. They were beaten um, quite a lot and, and just constant under constant threat of police. And um, so seeing how like she was treated ver- vis-a-vis like her family, her, her brothers and her her parents. Um, she was able to see herself as somebody who was needed for particular reasons, like to bring patriotism, you know, to a nation that was partially responsible for so much death and genocide. Um, and so she, she began, to, I would say she'd always question like, why is this person being this nice to me? You know, what do they lose if I don't act grateful? Um, and being so well read, of course, in like refugee narrative and <laughs> critical refugee studies, um, you know, she became very critical of how her icon um, circulated, especially during moments where like, it, you know, there were um, other marginalized populations who were being framed as less deserving uh, or when there was warfare or violence that was being done um, effectively, like similar to, you know, what's happening now um, with the war in Gaza. Um, which many refugee groups are standing up and refusing to play this role of grateful refugee, um, trying to instead show how, I think Lambridge does this as well, more in conversation with Syria and Afghanistan, um, to show how her history of maiming and bombing and bombs and death are like intimately and undeniably linked with the same apparatus, I guess, the same, she would not use that word, (laughs) the same, uh, mechanic leviathan structure of like racial capitalism and empire um and i think there's so much that lambridge offers us in like in the, the kind of way that it's continues to see through this like cold war frame of like you know it's always within the interest of the empire that the wars are displaced onto other people and to keep those wars there and money off those wars right and it's still even today it's still like an you know, it's a Southwest Asian, North African space. 
but it's, it mirrors so much of what was happening um, in the 70s and early 80s. And, um, you know, good refugees and especially good refugee memoirs can be uh, crucial examples of this like imperial exceptionalism to say that this war is different from those before it. Um, whereas I think works like Landbridge and what a lot of other groups are doing right now is to say this is actually part of what we witnessed and we are we refuse to play that role um, in service to this. Yeah, she talks in Landbridge about um, you know, it's it's like it is eerie the 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 image of the Syrian family that's brought to Canada and it's it's um Justin Trudeau now who's welcoming this family. Um I can't remember if they're also getting coats and you know mittens and cold weather gear, but but the way in which, right, that and and her own perspective right as being the face of that for a previous generation right for another war and here's benevolent the benevolent west stepping in to save you know these victims um and completely masking of course any complicity or any kind of like of the violence they that has been perpetrated um on their behalf it was just a very very powerful moment i thought um it really struck me and and that kind of the the position that she's been placed in, right, exceptionalized and in all those ways, and her critique, I felt like was really really powerful. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember she wrote um, one of the poems. She would write poetry when she was young, and um, she often wrote about being like the lucky one or the lucky refugee and things. And you know, like it was always she was often called that. But she would always juxtapose that with like, well, who are the unlucky ones? <laughs> you know, for every lucky refugee, there's thousands, tens of thousands of unlucky ones. And why do we only care about one story as opposed to the others? You know, what if we heard those stories? Um, and so I think that's another reason she tries to write Lambridge as more of a collective family memoir, because it's not only her story, it's the unlucky stories. And of course, her story ends very unlucky as well. But um the, the desire for that one story that's exceptional among the others, right, just kind of erases all the others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought of Landbridge as well, you know, it's a story about, you know, it's a chronicle of, of the past and her positioning, but it's also, you know, very much about your son Kai um, or written for him, it seems to me. Um, and so it's a letter to the future, Right. I mean, presumably th these are letters that she's written just some, I'm sure, of many things that she wanted to leave for him. But um, for a future self, for an adult, for an adult Kai to read and try to comprehend. Um, so I just for me, those those fragments were really those letters were really anchors. Um because not only was the language different, of course, because it's, you know, she's writing to her child, um, but it also felt, uh, you know, sort of looking to the past, but also what the past looks like into the future, what it might look like for Kai in the future. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Do you see, I mean, I saw the letters as offering hope. Um, and how did how did you I mean how what what are your thoughts on on the on the sort of um, what the letters do in the narrative? Yeah, the um, I mean I think they do kind of offer some hope. Like you know, hope can be a very like um, overused, appropriated word, uh, especially when it's not really specific or about such. But um, I like Ideng and I both never really had much you know, kind of superstitious, I guess that's a bad word to use, a more religious faith, I guess. 
Um, but we both, and especially she, I think more than more than me, believed a lot in the power of like knowledge and understanding um, and wisdom and trying to share that with others. Um, and she was, I think that comes from her parents who learned that from their communities in Cambodia um, as survival tactics. You know, that's why a lot of Lambridge, uh, the metaphors in it are about the survival tactics um, and how to like go on living within the like metaphors of these tactics, like like being silent, um, for example. Um, and she was very lucky in that sense that her parents would talk a lot about the war and about the the, uh, the genocide and all the and the bombings. Um, it's a very unusual thing it feels like in refugee families uh, to have such talkative, open, and honest you know, talk about it all the time. And because there was two of them who wanted to share it all the time, you know, when when, when they talk about it, they often argue with each other over very small details. <laughs> like like what this piece of, uh, what this kapok tree, like kapok seeds tasted like, or something like that, um, the exact dates of things. Um, and so there was this constant kind of in her household talk about this. And for her, of course, that gave her a lot of strategies for how to survive. Um, a lot of passing down of wisdom and knowledge, but also it, it gave her a very critical lens on, you know, what things happening around her was, you know, where the bombs were coming from. Like, oh, you knew the bombs were coming from these American planes because the American planes sounded different than all these others. And, you know, and so it's like immediately there's just so much there <laughs> that um, like historical knowledge and, and eyewitness accounts. Um, and I think her hope was always to pass on as much of that to our son as possible in the same ways of just kind of casually talking about things while doing dishes or something like that. Um, of course, she hasn't, she wasn't able to survive for that, but she was able to write that down um, in the book. Um, and in the way that whole book, in a sense, is a kind of a letter to, to Kai and to the future of passing down of that knowledge. Um, but those moments where she talks specifically to him are to kind of make him aware of you know, and the audience, I guess, in turn, of what this knowledge is meant to do, how it's, um, you know, how how he's being entrusted with it. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. And it is really powerful that her memories include um, details about her parents arguing about specifics, because I think that also shows that, you know, there is no one true narrative, right? That that you can have different, that there are different kind of alternative pathways through the material. And um, there isn't just one story that you have to pass on intact, word for word, you know, honoring it. it, it there is a sense of like, it's, it's being constructed by the community as well, which I think was really powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, she even leaves room at the end for our son to have different kind, you know, to see this as one as, of many different histories um that he doesn't need to feel as confined to the history of you know to Pol Pot time basically to the, the genocide and the war um and yeah, this was a kind of a choice for her you know in, in a lot of ways to pursue that knowledge and to you know continue to deal with it that a lot of refugees don't voluntarily do <laughs> and um you know and all the power to them for not wanting for not um we're not doing that and are choosing other things. Um, and so at the end, she does, she allows space for our son to say that like, there's other histories, you know, there's times before um, this in Cambodia, there's also, you know, your father's history, my histories. Um, there's a lot of things, you know, and, and um, it doesn't just have to be 
you know, war and tragedy and afterlife and, um, and all this for you. Um, and so I think him being free in the world to live and love was the most important thing really, um, to have that knowledge, but be able to enjoy life at the same time, which is how she lived too. She was like the funniest person I met. I met her. We had so much fun and joy together, even, um, you know, when she was sick and we were in the hospital, uh, I just went to the hospital actually a couple days ago to kind of visit some of the nurses and give them some uh, copies of Lambridge. And they all remembered Edang because she was such a joyful, positive, the, the word term they used was positive. And I was like, okay, because <laughs> often our jokes were just so dark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they heard the specifics. They just heard the like laughter. laughter maybe. But there yeah. was so much laughter and, and joy. Um, and they often thought we were newlyweds. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to just ask you one one more thing about your book and then maybe a final question. Um, you know, you talk about your, you know, sort of evangelical Christian upbringing and it, you're not affiliated or associated or believe in, in any of those things. But I was really struck by some of the ways in which Nimrod's um, really seems like it 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 is aware of or the structurally aware of kind of some of the tenets of christianity right the like i was really struck by the repetition of threes throughout the book three sections there's the grandfather the father and the son and then in that really i mean really powerful second i think that was probably my favorite part of the book was that second the second uh the antistrophe i think you call it um you have like almost like three sets of text happening. Um, and it was a sign, I think I thought a reflection of your relationship with your father that a conversation is never depicted. It's always like competing texts divided by white space. Um, so his story kind of taking up the main text and it looks biblical and then you're inserting yourself in the footnotes and this kind of um, sardonic and kind of very in a way academic of course footnotes are very academic um, and then the kind of more poetic language in the margins um, so can you talk a little bit about that like I was really struck by that I, I thought it was very powerful I thought it was really reflective of your relationship with your father and maybe your your past and also this this upbringing that you talk about this very weird <laughs> upbringing that you talk about within these kinds of uh, evangelical Christian circles. Can you can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I whenever I do readings of Nimrod, I usually read from that second section, um, which sounds like the hardest part to read from, but I think I just have so much more fun with it <laughs> because it's in my father's voice um, and it's me talking to my father in some ways, like you say, with this footnotes. And then there's haikus in the in the margins that are like, just kind of weird reflective spaces, but I'll, but sometimes they're also commenting and sometimes they're ridiculing. Um, yeah, and I I just felt like that was me thinking through like what one thing that brought me to poetry as, um, which I realized too later in life, too late in life I think was that for me a lot of poetry, in these like three part structures too, often mirrors like thinking, you know, in the, in like a dialectical but not quite a dialectical thinking. Um, and like strophe and anti-strophe is like, like there's an anti, right? <laughs> it's basically anti the thing that came before. Um, and then, uh, which isn't to say it's negation. It's not the same, I guess. That's but, right. That's right. And then ending with like a broader, like 
an epode would be more of like a invocation of the gods. Like, what do the gods think of all this fighting on the ground? Um, and are they going to get involved or not? You know, are they just going to make fun of it? And um, I think the same form is used like in odes, where it, which will usually end with like a reflection on death or mourning or redemption or something like that. So it ends with these more abstract kind of like meanings, which is basically for me to say like, you know, how do we broaden this out? <laughs> this like infighting of, of and all this tragedy. How do we broaden it? Um, but I do like that second section because it is kind of in the mess of things a bit, um, and it is kind of my father in some ways speaking back to me after all the kind of, um, you know, anger and things that come in the first section. It, to me, it's a kind of like, well, here's what I went through. You know, my brother died and I wasn't prepared for it, and. Um, I never had a chance to really mourn him, um, you know. And just a, there's just a lot there um, that that uh, I think needs to be wrestled with, like in the way that poetry mirrors thinking. Um, that structure of the book, you know, I, I needed to kind of think through so much in order to feel like I could be a good father. The book, in a sense, like mirrors a lot of the thinking I was doing, of having to like begin somewhere first, like with the the feelings and the affect and. Um, the, the memories that I was kind of embroiled in. And then the the second part would be a kind of a uh, different point of view on that, which is, I guess, kind of like a haiku too. You have like a setting and then you have an action that changes that setting, an action word usually, or some, some different shift in like point of view, um, like autumn leaves and then something about sprouting um, love, right? Just a completely like, different expectation. And then ending in a, in a sense with like, well, maybe I'll, I'll love again, because you weren't that great or something <laughs> that also defeats expectation. Um, yeah, so I needed to like, to be able to, to ha operate that um, within the form in order to then broaden out at the end and have a kind of broader um, say, and in, in, in a more present, I guess, say in like what all of this knowledge and, and infighting was really about, you know, kind of not, I wouldn't say like a God's point of view or something like that, but um, a more present one. And um, the third section is focuses a bit more on my, on like suicidal ideation on um, the kind of abstract forms of academia and the violences of some, some academic like claims and, and writings and, and um, institutional thinking and so, um, yeah, that, that's how I try to kind of revise a lot of those um, poetic and even like biblical forms to just be able to think, I guess, and outside of, you know, academic thinking too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it really is a space where I feel like all these things in your mind are playing out at the same time on the page. And mm. um, I really appreciated that. I mean, I, you know, it was difficult to read in the sense of like, as I mentioned in my intro, like sometimes I was like, well, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to read this in a certain order or, you know, certain words drop out of the page. Um, but I found that section in particular really, really powerful for that reason and, and funny. I mean, I, I I wouldn't call Nimrod's like hysterical or anything like that, but um, that's where I found like myself like chuckling a little bit sometimes. And I was like, I don't know if it's intentional, but um, but I, it seemed it did seem like you were trying to capture the chaos of that kind of thinking or your thinking during that period. Yeah, I do. I have heard that. I've felt it myself that whenever I reread Nimrod's or other people reread it, it's always funnier. Right. <laughs> 
second or third time or whatever. It gets funnier second, every time. Right, right, right. Okay, that's. Yeah, a I think it's once the shock wears off. Yeah, the, I mean, I think I mean, I'll go back and reread and and think about that because I did find myself finding it funnier as I moved through that second section. Mm, yeah. Um, and so, but yeah. So, final question. Um, obviously, you know, you don't need to have read both of these works to understand or follow one of them, right? They're standalone. Um, and they don't necessarily speak directly to each other. Although over the course of the conversation, you know, I've realized, oh, they, they kind of do. <laughs> um, but just, I'm wondering if, you know, you personally, I know you don't have any control over these things, but um, if you personally would wish for the two of them to be read or taught, you know, either side by side or one after the other. Um, and if you think doing so will illuminate some aspect of the one, you know, in reading the other that you can read, you know, you get some different perspective on the on the second one. Um, so what are, and I'm asking this because I read both, well, I read Landbridge first and then I read Nimrods. And um, for me, they are, it would be very difficult for me to teach the one without the other. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are about this. Yeah, no, I might ask you that exactly why that you feel that way. Um, you did mention like the the Kingston like a uh, duo of of uh, woman warrior and Chinaman, and I, I do feel like it is a bit like that. <laughs> like it, there's it, there, yeah, it really. I'm I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you before you answer my question, but. It really does. I really felt like, um, you know, that your two very different experiences, right, of Asian diaspora and then living in North America. And then also both of you, in, in your case, maybe retreating to Asia, right, or returning to Asia in various ways. Um, and I just felt like it really power both of the works in conjunction with each other really highlight like the power, like the sort of you know, the multi-sidedness, right, of Asian diasporic experience, right, that, that you know, um, Ideng was a child of war in Cambodia, you were being raised in the United States and under these radically different circumstances, right, um, but nevertheless, there is some kind of, like, not similarity, but like resonance or something between the two. And it's really a productive resonance, right? An interesting resonance. Um, so anyway, I, I'm, I, and it's because of course I read them one after the other. And I was moved incredibly by both of them and loved reading both of them. And so of course was like, I can't imagine teaching the one without the other or suggesting the one without suggesting the other. Um, but what, what do you think about yeah. that? No, like I, in some ways I feel so close to it that like I can't help but just see like her in her book and me in my book, <laughs> you know, um, but we also were a balancing act, you know, as a couple, uh, as an academic couple. And, and um, you know, I was sometimes she would like say like, you know, you should tell this person that what they're doing is is like problematic <laughs> and I was like well why can't you do it so I was always the one to kind of be a bit more out there um but we'd always negotiate things together right and she had completely different tactics like if she was in a meeting um she could say only one thing and the, the whole meeting you know it would just create actual change whereas I, I would say like a ton of things <laughs> and eventually maybe some it would create some good change um and or humor too, where I would just make a, a bunch of really bad jokes 
um, and she would just make one incredibly funny joke that would just last. So there, there was a lot more like diff, just balancing and difference in the way that we approach things, but we always balanced each other. Um, and I feel that when I read both of the works too, that there is a kind of, um, there is like a gentleness and ambiguity in her work. Um, whereas mine is a bit more like in your face, <laughs> kind of jocular. Um, but I think they're both kind of covering up for that too. Like her book is very argumentative without ever using the word argument, right? Or without ever really just pushing a, a claim or a statement. Whereas I feel like mine is on the surface, like very angry and argumentative, but it's actually, once you get a bit deeper, it's very ambiguous. Like I still don't really know <laughs> sometimes when I think of like my own upbringing and, you know, it tries to get away from all of that as well. Um, and mine on the surface is an anti-memoir, but gets more memory, I guess. And hers on the surface is a memoir and then gets a bit more experimental than people would expect. And so we're, we're, we just have such different kind of ways that we're both kind of growing. Both books are like in the same soil, but become different plants, I guess, in a sense. Um, but there's there are some things that, that they both really distinctly um, I think that would be useful for teaching. Like they're both very much in like um, theory of the flesh kind of traditions. Um, we're both like, I'm thinking a lot of like dictate and, and more experimental kind of memoirs. And she's thinking of a lot more like ethnic autobiographies that were never really sold as such, like a lot of Asian American literature, Canadian, Asian Canadian literature. Um, and so we're both very much in our own kind of traditions that we see as, as, as giving us the forms um, that we need for it. And we're both trying very hard throughout to like, to show where the ideas and stories are coming from. Um, in Nimrods, there's a lot of, there's sometimes there's like outright gestures to like, this is line is from Solmaz Sharif, this line is from Jasmine Ward. But then if you, once you get to the end, there's this sec, the invoice section, which basically just says like, this line that you might've thought was mine was actually Bell Hooks, you know? and and all these lyrics <laughs> and things like that um and so i'm trying you know to just be like as real as i can not only about you know history and 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 experience but also like where the art is coming from and where it's influenced by um, and she was also very devoted to doing that you know as you were saying a lot of the stories have like contradictions that she tries to think about um and even with her own stories, you know, she's also thinking through madness and and therapy and like how she can sometimes trust her own experiences, you know. And so there's just there's a lot of and it has to rely on others and her own research, I should say, to 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 do that work for her sometimes. Um, and so we we also wanted to be very like um, outspoken and honest about ourselves as artists and writers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time um, to talk about Nimrods and Lambridge. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I've been looking forward to having it for so long, ever since I read um, the books. Um, and so thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. No, it's, it's a real joy to talk about it. I don't think this might be the first time I've talked about both of these books in the same conversation, like 
in the interview. So it's it's been a lot of um, feelings I've been kind of holding back. <laughs> so thank you for giving me the opportunity to express it. No, no, and and um, you know, thank you for writing this wonderful book, and our, our thanks to Edang as well for sharing these thoughts. Um, yeah, really powerful, really powerful, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Um, that I get to, that I've gotten to read them and that I can tell people about them now as well. Well, thank you. That's, that's great. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening.